If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. We will continue our study on how to exercise true love. Paul is describing here for us. Let's bow for prayer. Father, as always, we are grateful for your word and we ask, Lord, that your spirit would enable us, Father, to grasp the truths that are here. That, Father, we would have a very strong desire for our lives, for our hearts to be transformed by your word. The Lord, it would be the desire of our heart to love you and to love others in this way. The Father, that we would not just look at how others may fail to love us, but Lord, that we would look at how we fail to love others and that we would seek to remedy that. And Father, we need your help. And so Father, we ask for your blessing on our time that we will be blessed in this way with understanding and with a strong desire to apply and the strength necessary for this to happen. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. A couple of things by way of reminder. Number one, remember, because there are many individuals who attempt this type of thing, both within and without and outside of the church. And that is where we take the practical, uh, what seems to be the, the practical commands, the practical advice that we find in the scripture, and we seek to apply it to our life, kind of like a self-help book. And so many individuals recognize here the uh, uh, superior, superior kind of definition of love, and they say, yeah, I need to love others this way. And so you may or may not make a checklist and we seek to, to apply this to our lives, to live this way. And again, remember that if you seek to live this way, you will probably fail. And normally what will happen is, is you will actually become more aware of how others don't love you this way. So then you will become more bitter, bitter and more cynical. We need to remind ourselves that this is clearly how God wants us to live. And we are to be focused on this. But this also is the work of the Spirit of God in us as we grow in our relationship with God. And so as we spend time, what we call the spiritual disciplines, we spend time in the Word, spend time in prayer, spend time with the believers in the worship of God, this kind of bears fruit in our life. And we should be paying attention to this, uh, and again, trying to cultivate this, but again, not in the self-help kind of way. Also, remember that last week we talked about, in particular, verse 6. Where it says it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. And so, reading once again a small quote from Barnes' commentary, it says, Love does not find pleasure in hearing others accused of sin and in having approved that they have committed it. It does not desire that an enemy or a slanderer should do evil or should disgrace and ruin himself. And so then we talked about this looking at the politics of our day and in particular certain individuals and how too often, as Christians, we find ourselves not living as Christ would have us to, love, to, to live. We, we don't love others this way. We rejoice when those who are our enemies or who are our perceived enemies 
uh, are accused of sin, proven uh, they have sinned, and maybe fall into disgrace. And so there is definitely, I think, plenty for us to work on over the last seven days uh, when it comes to that. But then in verse 7 he says this, Love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, and endures all things. I believe he's really making the same point as he repeats himself. So let me read this to you from the Amplified. And I believe that I put that in your notes. It says, Love bears up under anything and everything that comes. Is ever ready to believe the best of every person. Its hopes are fadeless under all circumstances. And it endures everything without weakening. Which is really an incredible statement. Now let me just say this. Uh, by way of, I guess, comparison, uh, what we are, we are not saying that you just ignore reality, that you ignore the evil that's out there, and we just pretend to be happy and smile and believe the best about everyone. That's not what that says. Remember that this is not the way God loves us. God does not love us by pretending we do no wrong. All right? Sometimes we see certain parents or grandparents loving their kids that way, we may know the truth about their son or daughter who is what we might call a, a helion or a, some kind of a hooligan and how they live and they just, oh, my son is so precious and wonderful. Isn't he so sweet? He never does anything wrong. And we're wondering if they have a drinking problem because they are clearly not aware of the reality of the situation. So God loves us knowing everything about us. And God never pretends for a moment that it's okay, or that it doesn't matter, or that it's not a big deal. So then we are to love this way. So this attitude, this, this desire that we have, this drive, this commitment of the will we have, again, is with full knowledge, or our eyes are wide open to the reality of the situation. So it is the character of love then to put up with everything, not pretend it doesn't exist. There is nothing, according to this, that true love cannot face. Love has a tenacity in the present. It is buoyed by its absolute confidence in the future. It enables it to live in every kind of circumstance and continually to pour itself out in behalf of others. Just those statements alone should cause us to realize that loving others in the flesh is just going to be short-lived. Because we do not ever see ourselves being able to continually pour ourselves out on behalf of others. We need a break at times. And that's because we're doing this in the flesh. The key, as you read the rest of Scripture, and it goes, I think goes back initially to Romans, which tells us that God has poured His love into our hearts. That's the well that we draw from. So again, if you are not walking with the Lord as you ought to, you are not going to be able to love this way. Your, your resources will be depleted rather rapidly. Your resources here being your patience and your kindness and your gentleness and your ability to understand others. That is going to be strengthened and fed by the Spirit of God, primarily using the Word of God and also Christian fellowship in your life. And we then should find ourselves able to do this. Paul is informing us here that there are four things that love never ceases to possess and that love never ceases to practice. So again, the emphasis is that love never ceases. It is not that this is how love is most of the time. This is how love is all the time. 
Four things we can always expect from genuine love. Again, love always bears up under adversity. That's what it means when it says love bears all things. Love patiently accepts all things. Again, this is not a nod of approval. This is you accept the way things are. You accept the way people are. I guess one of the easier ways to describe this would be for individuals who have a special needs child and they understand clearly the limits of their special needs child and yet they patiently accept their child with all those limitations. That's the idea that's presented here. Love always supports, love never gives up. Paul seems to be saying something about the endurance of love. It's ability to go on no matter what the opposition. When it comes to the word bears, when it says it bears all things, that's a Greek term that Paul uses. It has two senses. It means originally to cover over, and then secondarily it means to contain as a vessel. Kind of an odd definition, but you take these metaphorical uses of the word and you kind of put them together and trying to figure out what Paul's really getting at. And one of two things kind of rises to the top. And that is, number one, that love hides or is silent about the faults of others. So you're not denying it. You just don't keep putting a spotlight on it. You don't, you don't put a spotlight on it for others, but you also don't put a spotlight on it. You overlook it. You're purposely overlooking it. Or secondarily, it could be this, that love bears without resentment injuries inflicted by others. So that's why we would say that a believer, a true believer, does not hold a grudge. That's what a grudge is. You have resentment towards others. Maybe resentment that others don't know what they did to you, resentment of what they actually have done to you. Whatever the case may happen to be, there is this resentment that is there. So as we grow as believers... As God pours His love in our hearts, as we mature as believers, there is less and less of resentment towards others. Others who are, who are guilty of hurting us, who are guilty of injuring us. We have less and less, and I do believe eventually it fades away. Because our hearts, there is this love of God that is poured to a point of overflowing in our lives. Again, in the same way, the, the parents who have a special needs child... If that child has caused them physical pain by lashing out or whatever the case may happen to be, what you do not hear from those parents, even if they have to correct the child later by saying, I remember what you've done to me before and I resent you for that. You just don't hear that. That doesn't come out of their mouth. For Maybe for most of them, that's just not even in their heart. It's not even there. How's that explained? They love their child. That's, that's, there, what the, there is no other explanation. That's what love does. Love is powerful in that way. So, before we go on, I want us to, to look at a very personal way to apply this passage to ourselves. This would be very difficult to do honestly. If you were to maybe recite this to someone else about yourself, they might laugh at you. Just remember, if they laugh at you, that's because they know it's not true. So I'll be the guinea pig. I trust that you'll keep your laughter muffled or to yourself. But we should be able to declare this as a believer. Unfortunately for me, I've been a believer since I was 12, which means I have no excuse. 
God, I have enough decades under my belt, so to speak, as a believer, that I should be able to say this about myself. Bob is patient. Well, we don't need to read any longer. I'm done. <laughs> I'm already fried. Bob is patient and kind. Bob does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. Bob does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Bob bears all things. Bob believes all things. Bob hopes all things. And Bob endures all things. Well, I can tell you that I do some of these. I can tell you that some of these are true in some situations. Some of these are true with certain individuals all the time. Many of these things, or some of these things, are rarely true. That just shows that I'm an inconsistent Christian who needs to continue to grow in Christ so that this then becomes more of an accurate description of me. Because this is God's will for my life. Whenever anyone says to you, I just wish I knew what God's will was for my life. You got them. Just say, I know exactly God's will for your life. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13. And then you volunteer to read it for them. And so, if Sean came to me and said, Bob, I, just, I really want God's will. So, Sean, God wants to be patient and kind. He wants you not to envy or boast. He doesn't want you to be arrogant or rude. He doesn't want you to insist on your own way. That is God's specific will for your life today and every day. Which immediately reveals to us an unbelievable need we have to depend upon God for His help. Because sin has truly corrupted us in every way. And this becomes unbelievable. But this is the will of God. We have no excuse and nowhere to hide. It should at least be this. And this is where it gets, I guess, maybe even harder. I mean, I've, I've been a believer over, over 50 years. This should be a little more accurate than it is for me. It should be more accurate for you if you've been a believer. And I don't know what the magic number is. I don't know if it's 10 years, 20 years. I would certainly hope that by 30 years, we would say that, yeah, most of this is true for me. Not, that, not in an arrogant way, not that we're bragging. But we need to be able to honestly evaluate where we are as believers. And again, remember that this is, again, not that I am this way most of the time in public. I am, that this is the essence of who I am. This is the essence of who you are. In the workplace, at the family reunion, when you're at your home and you know the blinds are shut and the doors are closed. This is you. In those moments when stress is building up and you're feeling irritable, this is you. Again, not in denial of the reality of how the world is. We are to be able to display a, an inner strength that can only be attributed to the Lord. That we are this. So Paul's his main point really in all of this is this. Love is superior to all the spiritual gifts because love outlasts them all. Love never fails. Spiritual gifts do fail. So then when it comes to 
to you and I, and, and, and specifically to the Corinthians. Remember, they were using spiritual gifts or the possession of particular gifts as a way to measure someone's spirituality, to measure their spiritual value or worth, maybe within the body. They were, that was the measuring stick they were using. And what Paul is saying is that's not the wrong measuring stick. Here's the measuring stick that you should be using. But Paul's not done. He says love never ends in verse 8. And then he begins to really press his comparison between spiritual gifts and love. He says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Often what happens with this passage, and it's not wrong, but often what happens in this passage is because of the controversy, the lack of understanding of spiritual gifts, and in particular, uh, tongues would be number one, and then there's a few others. Uh, this passage is primarily turned to to prove certain points, to make certain points about spiritual gifts, about whether or not they're temporary, whether or not they're for today, and, and it goes on and on with that. And that's not necessarily wrong, but I think what has happened is, is we have lost the intent, Paul's original intent with all of this. Because even when it comes to our discussions about spiritual gifts, and even if we end up understanding exactly what the, what the proper doctrine should be pertaining to each of the spiritual gifts, if we don't have love, we're just noisemakers. And that's what we need to remember. So we want to be accurate with the Word of God, absolutely. And we'll cover a few things. I'm not going to go into much detail because I don't want us to overlook what Paul is doing. The spiritual gifts, again, have a temporal purpose. Their use, basically, and this is true for all spiritual gifts, they will come to an end one day. Gifts are a means that God uses to show His presence and love until we see Him face to face. So in verse 8, it says, as for prophecies, they will cease. Now, Paul picks on certain gifts because these are the ones that the Corinthians were emphasizing. Just so happens that in the, the day that we live in, it tends to be the same kind of gifts that people sometimes wrongly overemphasize. And that's sometimes where, where, where things come into play. They're overemphasized. And then, of course, along with that, there at times comes some confusion as to what those gifts may actually be, because either a lack of, a, lack of study or a lack of a proper way of approaching truth um, biblically. And so Paul begins with prophecies, where uh, the primary thing here is individuals speaking a word from God to the church for their edification. Paul here is contrasting, again, the permanence of love with the temporary and the transitory nature of spiritual gifts. There's a time coming in God's program 
when the gift of prophecy will be caused to cease. So when is that? That's, you know, people have discussed that. Uh, there are those who say that prophecy still exists. There are those who say that it has ceased. Uh, I also know that in the Old Testament it talks about a day when these gifts will be functioning and it seems to be shortly before the coming of the Lord. Uh, what I normally want to discuss with individuals is I, I personally do not want to get into any argument as to whether or not the gifts are all for today. Because I'm, I'm not sure that's always profitable. It, it may be. But I do believe that once we have a good understanding of what a gift actually is, and how it's supposed to function, if we got that down, I'm pretty confident we're going to be okay with the rest. I really am. Because normally, not always, but normally the abuses that I see are individuals, I don't need another way to say this, I guess I would say pretending, to have a gift they don't have. Or they have misdefined the gift so that it defines what they're doing, but it's not the gift that God has given. And people use it to, they, I mean, it, we're just, it's human nature. People use it to manipulate others. People still use this to show that they're either closer to God than you are or whatever the case may happen to be. You know, the idea is, is well, I'm, I'm telling you this, but God has said this through me, and so therefore you really have to obey now. And, and there's been all types of movements within the church through the centuries where people have done this. There was a, a movement back in the, um, I guess it was in the 80s or around that time. It was, it was called, uh, it was, it was a, a briefly lived thing. It started in California. I know that sounds surprising to some of us. But uh, in California, it, kind of started, it, was called, it was kind of a, it had different names. One of them was, was uh, shepherding theology. I know that sounds really weird. But basically the idea was, is that um, whenever anyone in the church wanted to do anything, they, had, they would have to go to the pastor. And, and I mean anything. You want to buy a new refrigerator? You've got to come talk to me first. And I would let you know if that's what God wanted you to do or not. Now I know most of you aren't going to come ask me if you, want, if you should buy a new refrigerator or not. But there were tons of people who were doing that kind of thing. You know, should I buy a new refrigerator? Should I buy a new car? Should I buy a house? Should I move? Should I change jobs? Should I marry this person? I mean, just on and on. And uh, man, just I think it ruined a lot of lives. It, it, a lot of devastation that was out there. And so we need to be aware of what these gifts are. And again, prophecy in a technical sense is receiving divine inspired revelation from God. So we never want to minimize that. Whenever anybody says... God has, God told me, or God has revealed to me. They are saying something uh, very unique, and it is, if they're, if they're right, it's important. And it carries, and it should carry a lot of weight. My question that I have is, when it became clear, and I'm not going to get into discussion as to whether that's really clear or not, but when it became clear, at least nationally, that Biden was going to be certified as the winner of the election and he was going to be sworn in as president, there were many individuals, and you can look them up on the internet, who made, you know, tapes of themselves, recordings of themselves, videos of themselves, declaring not that they believed that Trump would serve a second term, but that God had told them he would. Or that God had revealed. To me, it's pretty simple. All those individuals need to close their mouths for at least the next 20 years. They're false prophets. That's it. 
There is nothing else to say. Those who said they had dreams, but the dream was from God. But I looked on the internet, and I haven't found any of them yet, saying, you know what? I misrepresented the words of God. God didn't tell me. Man, did I blow it? I'm resigning. I can't find it anywhere. And I can't find tons of people leaving churches where these pastors said these things. I don't get it. Clearly it was not from God. Because when we say that God has told us something, it either better be in the word here, or it better become exactly true as they say that it's going to, because we are claiming divine revelation. That's what the Bible is. It is inspired from God. We proclaim that the Bible has zero mistakes. And people have tried for centuries to try to find mistakes. There are no mistakes in here. In history, in grammar, in anything. It is accurate, 100%. And when we then declare that God has told us something, that's, that same standard applies. Because we're, we're saying that the one who knows all things, who knows everything, and knows the future as well as he knows the past, has declared to me this truth. That's why I don't say... God has said, unless I'm quoting from the Bible. Just like, you know, when we were going through the application of verses 4 through 7. That is God's will for your life. We can say that. That is God's revealed will for your life. God has said and commanded that we live that way. We all can say that. We don't need it to come to us in a dream or God to speak to us in a voice. He has spoken to us clearly and loudly in and through his word now there's a day coming when the church will no longer need the gift of prophecy. I have my doubts that the gift of prophecy is active today. But like I said, I'm just not going to argue that with anyone because it never seems to get anywhere. There's no headway with that. So my personal belief, I don't think uh, it exists today. I don't think it's in practice. I've not heard of it being done I would say correctly or accurately, but my knowledge of these things experientially is going to be pretty limited, and so I'm just not going to get all hung up about it. Uh, if somebody claims they have that, you can claim whatever you want. You know, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. He does say that where there are tongues, again, remember what tongues are. Biblically speaking, tongues is the ability to speak fluently in a language you've never studied. I, well, we're going to get more into it because it's necessary because of what 1 Corinthians 14 does. So I'll be able to prove all of that to you. But this idea that it's a heavenly language is, is not biblical. This idea that it's the language of angels, it depends on how you define that. Because my friend Arnold Frutenbaum says all angels speak Hebrew. So if you speak Hebrew fluently and you never studied it, then, then you can speak in the language of angels. But other than that... Uh, this idea that there's some kind of a angelic language that we know nothing, that's not, that's not in the Bible. This idea that it's a private prayer language. I know that sounds nice. It's not in the Bible. There's no such thing as that. Just, I don't, you know, we, we live in a time where, where people are afraid of absolutes. You know, we've become so stinking postmodern. Everything is relative and we don't want to be wrong and say, you know, we hide behind, well, I don't know everything. Well, okay, it's true. 
And then what we'll say is, well, it may be this or it might be that. Uh, well, you know, so-and-so says they have, a, they have a private prayer language and they're such nice people. They may be nice people. But there's no such thing as a private prayer language. That's just it. It's just, you know, that's, that's all there is to it. Just like, you know, they used to sell newspapers and said, you know, for the first time that has ever happened, a dog and a cat have reproduced. Well, you, you know, they can do all they want, but that's just not going to happen. Period. It, it biologically can't take place. That's it. It's an absolute. And so when it comes to tongues, it does say they will cease. There's no need for that spiritual gift in the future anyway, because I think all of us will be speaking the same language. Don't worry, you don't have to take classes. We'll be able to handle it right away. Remember, God changed the languages at the Tower of Babel instantly. And people were speaking different languages, fully developed, fluently. That must have been a trip to be there doing that and trying to find individuals who spoke your language. I, I just wonder what is going through your mind when that happens. If I wake up tomorrow and I can speak other languages fluently, I'd be pretty excited. You know, because I took, you know, a year of French and a year of Spanish, and all I could do was I could mimic the recorder. I had no clue what I was saying. I could even have a French act. I could speak French with a French accent, but that was because it was on the recorder. I, you know, I can't do it now. But anyway, tongues are going to cease. Scholars believe that the gift of tongues ceased. There are those who believe that tongues ceased after the first century. Uh, they make uh, uh, the, the stance that when you read through this passage, it says that tongues will be stilled or tongues will cease, meaning that they will cease of themselves. When it comes to prophecy, they emphasize that something from the outside causes it to cease. When it comes to t- the tongues, it just kind of goes away by itself. When you read the book of Acts, it does seem to indicate that the gift of tongues kind of faded out. You don't really have much talk about the gift of tongues after 400 A.D. Those are all true facts. Uh, what we do know for a fact is, again, all spiritual gifts are temporary, period. That's true. Uh, so, again, the question is, when have they, or when did they, or when will they end? And at least one day we know they will end when the Lord returns, because there will be no longer a need for those. So, whether you are a cessationist, or you believe, or you are a continuist, meaning you believe the, those spectacular gifts are normally the ones they talk about, are continuing, I really think it's okay to be on either side of that. I really do. It just depends on your definitions of how those gifts are. And that, I think, uh, is where you begin to see where the issues arise and where the problems come. So I don't think that Paul is trying to specify. uh, There's a book written by a reform guy called Perspectives on the Pentecost. And he says this, Paul is not intending to specify the time when any particular mode will cease. What he does affirm is the termination of the believer's present fragmentary knowledge when the perfect comes. The time of the cessation of prophecy in tongues is an open question so far as this passage is concerned and will have to be decided on the basis of other passages and considerations. And so thus the arguments go on. But again, Paul's basic point seems to be that all spiritual gifts, including tongues, will pass away. Three things about that. They will pass away when perfection comes, when we shall see face to face, and when I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And that all seems to be pointing to me to what is called in many books the second advent of Christ or the second return of Christ. That is definitely when all this is going to happen. And so I tend to land on that side. Uh, and again, the main point is to go back to then what is the one permanent thing that we need to be focused on. The, the thing that this church, though they had the exercise and the manifestations of many spiritual gifts, where were they blowing it? Loving each other as they ought to. 
displaying the love of Christ to them and those outside of them. That was what was going to cause others to come to know Christ. That was what was going to cause others to declare that God was among them, was the way that they loved each other. And we have historical records of individuals, letters that were written, some of them uh, between different Roman politicians writing to friends about this movement of the way, or this movement of Christians, or this movement of people who follow Christos. Um, and what, what is interesting is many of them talk about how this community of believers, how they cared for each other, and how they loved each other. And that is what just blew them away. They live in a very barbaric time, uh, in a very selfish time, and so it really stood out. Because oftentimes, you know, the majority of the people were poor, and yet the poor were still uh, very generous in helping each other, and even helping those in, in other small towns and villages and cities. And so it was just, and they weren't running around bragging about themselves. There wasn't a campaign to draw attention to what they were, what they were trying to accomplish. And yet, the information about how they lived just kind of spread uh, throughout the regions. And it was really quite amazing. And so that is what Paul, I believe, is stressing here and what he wants us to get back to here. So let me encourage you to do this, is to take 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, you might want to do this in the privacy of a room and read it with your name inserted for the word love. And ask yourself, can this be said of me consistently? And if it cannot, then you will know immediately the areas of your life you should pray for. Those of us who are married, some of you probably already know where these things don't match up to your spouse. You didn't try to think about it, it just came to you instantly. <laughs> because you know them so well, and that tends to be human nature. Ooh, I know exactly who that's for. You know, it's never us, it's, it's others. But I would challenge you to do this. Number one, it probably isn't the will of God, I'm not saying probably, it is not the will of God for you to go home today and say, Dear, did you hear the message? Did you notice that you're lacking in? And start going through the list. Don't do that. It might upset your digestion. What I would suggest that you do is to begin to pray for them. Pray that God would work on them and help them. And ask the Lord, number one, to work on your weak areas, because perhaps, because this is often the way the Lord works, as He changes you, He will change them. What we normally want to do is, God, as you change them, I'm willing to change. That's backwards. It's because, remember, your prayer one day may be, Lord, they still haven't changed. But I beg you to keep changing me. And that's where our focus needs to be. So that we then can be a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ to both believers and to non-believers alike. Because He gets the glory and the praise, and the credit. And I do believe that if we go that route, again, we may begin to see that you and I will have a greater influence on others. It may not happen immediately, but it will give strength to the influence that we have. It is not the way of man to do this. This is the way of God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful we know, Lord, that 
Paul or that you really has, has made a tremendously strong point when it comes to who we are to be, the essence of who we are as people. That to be like Christ is to love like Christ. And so, Father, I ask that you would give to each one of us a, a desire. And I pray you help us to follow through on examining our hearts and lives before you. That we would read scripture in light of where we are, where we sit today as Christians. I pray, Lord, that you would not allow us to be self-deluded. I pray that, Father, that these areas where we are weak or where we are flawed, we pray, Lord, that there will be an emphasis placed on those things that we will know immediately in our hearts where our flaws are. I pray that for those who take these things seriously, that they will not feel condemned, but they would rest on the truth, as the Bible says, that in Christ we are not condemned. And that, Lord, that they would recognize that you are already fully aware of these areas of weakness. And that, Father, we would strive together to love as we ought to love. Help us with this, Father. We are needy people. We are weak in the flesh. We have a strong, selfish, prideful streak that runs through all of us. And we are still prone, for some, even at this moment, to think accurately of the failures of others. We ask, Lord, that you would transform our lives even to the point that others would actually begin to notice. In fact, some may think that we have for the first time become a Christian. Father, we pray that this would be something that would not last just for one or two weeks. But Lord, this would set us on the path for months and years ahead. So this becomes who we are. Because of Christ. I know, Lord, that as this takes place, we will experience deep and lasting happiness and joy. And so, Father, help us in our moment of need. Father, for those who do not know you, I pray that, Lord, you put a spotlight on their hearts and that they would recognize that Not only do they not love this way, but they have not truly been able to experience true love because sin is in the way. They are living in rebellion to you and your word, and I pray that they would recognize that. And they would humble themselves. They would plead for the mercy of Christ. That they would repent of their sins and believe in the work and the person of Jesus Christ and be saved. Knowing, Lord, that at that moment you will pour your love into their hearts and give to them immediately the capacity to love as they have been loved. Father, we thank you again for your unbelievable patience with us. For many of us have been unloving for so long. Thank you, Father, for knowing what we can become in Christ and for giving us all that we need to become that. We do thank you 
And we do ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.